Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with Ed Harrison. He's the senior editor of Bloomberg News. Get his thoughts on these markets. Ed, thanks so much for joining us via Zoom here. What do you make of what we heard from Fed Chairman Powell yesterday and then maybe the market's reaction to it? Yeah, I think uh, there are two things there, Matt. Uh, one is that there was no pushback from the Fed. And I think that's the most significant of the two things. The second, obviously, is the dot plot, which was relatively dovish. But when you add those two together, particularly the one with the lack of pushback, uh, it says that markets have room to rip from here. And this is exactly the opposite of what I was thinking ahead of the meeting. I was writing that the Fed would at least do a perfunctory pushback, but that's not what we got. When we when you look at the transcript of what uh, Powell, when he was asked questions, Nick Timoros of the Wall Street Journal, he asked him, look, you know, uh, we've gotten uh, a lot of um, of easing of policy on on your behalf by anticipating a funds rate next year that's a full percentage point lower in September. And Mr. and and Jerome Powell said in response, he said, "Look, you know, we're just going to do what we have to do. We're not going to think about the market. They're going to do what they need to do, and we'll meet somewhere in the future in some place." And and that was enough for the market to say, "Okay, look." We have no pushback here. We're definitely just going to let it go. You know, it's interesting, Ed, because when you think back to the November meeting, that was really when Powell had pushed back on all of the, uh, you know, or really more the, paid more attention, I should say, to financial conditions. And that was a time when Treasury yields were really uh, going higher. And, you know, it was like, oh, well, this is maybe kind of nice. You know, they're doing a bit of the work for us. Like, we'll take that. And now there's been so much easing just built in and the treasury market for people thinking that this pivot was coming of course on the now the decision has come stocks and treasuries just ripping further so is there really does powell still care about the you know financial conditions at this point or he's kind of just willing to let them go as they please yeah, I think that he's given up on, on on looking at it. It makes a lot of sense in terms of thinking about where we are in terms of the easing cycle or the tightening cycle. We're ba basically by giving up on trying to get financial conditions in order. He's moving to a full on, um, you know, data dependent mode. That means that we're not giving you any guidance except for what you get in the SCP. And as the data come in, uh, we're going to do what we need to do and you guys do what you do. So in terms of going until the end of the year, 
you know, we got the retail sales that we, you guys were just talking about, which were bullish, as well as the initial uh, and continuing claims. And the markets just completely disregarded that. You know, you look at the treasury markets at a minimum, and they uh, continued to, to go be below 4% on the 10 year. And so what that says is that, you you know, the, the path of least resistance until the end of the year is towards lower yields. And then we'll have to see what the data show. And when the data come out, we're going to see some volatility because there's no guidance as to what the Fed's reaction function will be. Everyone's now thinking March for the first cuts. But if the if we see those retail sales numbers again and again and again, uh, like that we saw today, then people are going to have to push back those uh, those expectations. You know, it's I think one of the risks here as I just kind of look at the market reaction yesterday and today is that, you know, Fed Chairman Powell may have lost the ability to rein in this market if the data does, in fact, go the other way. I mean, it's just he seems to have, um, you know, kind of un unleashed the wild spirits, if you mm -hmm. will, of this market. I'm not sure how he ever gets back to any kind of cautious narrative here. I'm wondering if he's, I don't, I'm going to say misplayed yesterday, but maybe it was misinterpreted by the market or it just seems like it's tough to close the barn door now. Yeah, you know, I think that that is uh, a worry. My my worry is, and I've said this before, is 1999. You know, when I talked to you the, uh, two times ago, I think we were talking about partying like it's 1999. He's allowing that to happen, and obviously, if that happens, then what you see is a harder landing uh, down the line. It's it's very difficult to see a scenario in which you have. Unemployment at 3.7% for an extended period of time without the Fed having to continually uh, be at the ready to tighten financial conditions. Uh, and, and that's where we're headed into 2024. And with markets increasing the price earnings ratios, increasing their bets on cuts of, of interest rates, it, it sets up a very nasty uh, uh, a headache down the line potentially. Yeah, I mean, let's like just roll it back just a little bit here for some perspective. So we had that awesome jobs report on Friday of last week, you know, great payrolls number, unemployment rate down, and wages were up. Fast forward to this week, uh, the CPI report, you know, obviously, you know, a bit of concerning, I would think, for Fed officials there that that service sector inflation still very much powering ahead. So not much of a dent there. Um, and then, of course, they didn't get to see today before they met the retail sales and jobless claims data. But you would think all of that would be supporting higher rates at this point and not be talking about cuts. Well, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to see what Michelle Bowman has to say, because I know that Powell, he uh, flicked at her a little bit so as to not uh, leave her dangling in the wind. She's one of the few people who thinks that rates should be higher. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that we could go either way. But really, it was a very perfunctory, very lip service type of comment on his part. I think that, you know, the wind is blowing towards easing and to the degree that we see uh, those numbers that you were talking about, Jess, go down, then we are going to get the easing that people expect, perhaps not as quickly as they expect. But, you know, the Fed is primed in that direction. And, and I think that that's the, the path of least resistance at, at this point in time. So, Ed, I mean, w what's your view of inflation here? I mean, I, I guess the the Fed feels like it's on the right path, which it arguably is. But I guess it's just a question of timing to when we get to the inflation level that the Fed really looks at. What's your view? 
My view is that uh, we're in, a, in, a, in an interesting paradigm that we haven't seen over the say the last twenty years. You know, where you have the deglobalization, uh, you also have a dearth of workers as the baby boomers leave the uh, the working population. So there are some structural changes that create upward pressure on inflation in the U.S. in particular, and so. You know, with uh, core PCE inflation at 3.5%, that's almost double the, the Fed's mandate. It, it, really, you could get down to something in the two, say like 2.9, and the Fed could start to ease. But, but, but beyond that, it's going to be very difficult. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Fed going forward to continually be at the ready to, uh, to, to tighten financial conditions because inflation is likely to to continually be sticky given those those headwinds. 20 seconds here Ed, when's that first cut coming? I would say the first cut is going to come uh June. That that's that's what I would June, say. June, okay. And uh and so uh we're going to see some uh some steepening as a result of that and then it's going to be a rapid cut because by that time, it'll be clear that the, the economy has uh, deteriorated. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Ed Harrison, senior editor for Bloomberg News. We certainly recommend uh, Ed's Everything Risk column. Good stuff, good reads uh, all the time. Uh, and we appreciate getting a few minutes of his time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. People certainly liked what they heard from the Fed yesterday. Let's bring in Jay Hatfield. He's a CEO, founder, and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors. He joins us live here in the Bloomberg Interactive <laughs> Broker Studio, like he always does. Never mails it in, never phones it in. The kids could learn something from, from that. Jay, I don't know. What did you take yesterday? It certainly surprised, I think, the market uh, with Fed Chairman Jay Powell's, I guess, tone of comments, maybe even the dot plots as well. What did you take away from it? Thanks, Paul and, and Molly. Well, we were surprised, like the market. We had thought that the Fed was only going to have two uh, cuts priced into the dot plot. Um, so it's a welcome relief. But I think that you've had some uh, new participants they come on to the Fed, like Austin Goolsby, and they're looking at what they should look at, which is more a mosaic of data, instead of myopically focusing on this PCE core. We think that's a disaster and makes the Fed fundamentally <laughs> a flawed. Disaster, <laughs> really? Oh, Total disaster. Yeah. What's wrong I've with got, core PCE? Even, <laughs> <laughs> the problem is you have to look. If you watch core PCE, then you'll end up being incompetent. Federal Reserve, and you'll call oh inflation <laughs> transitory when it's skyrocketing. So what you should do is look at PPI, look at CPI-R, that's our index, or in other words, adjust the horrible shelter component of BLS, and then use something called judgment instead of a rule <laughs> that Greenspan used to use, who was the real star of monetary policy. And so it seems like 
they've taken a leap and are using judgment instead of just focusing on this one measure that's massively flawed. So which ones are, I mean, will you just rattle off a couple of metrics there? Um, I mean, which one do you think right now has the most of a signal right now for inflation that you're really paying attention to? Well, the reason that we've kind of nailed this cycle since the pandemic is that we, unlike the Fed, we look at monetary policy, which drives housing market. And then we're lucky because we're energy investors. We have a pipeline fund. I founded a pipeline company. So if you I would argue if you have those two inputs, you can ignore monetary policy. Just look at the housing sector and energy prices and you will be a good forecaster. So right now, um, you know, housing prices did come way down. They have ticked up. We talked about the last time. So that's a little bit of risk. But rents are low. So we might have to have yet another index that has just rents. Yeah, like you said, you would not know that looking at the CPI index <laughs> right. of shelter. Or even our CPI-R is ticked up because Case Shiller went up, mm -hmm. but rents are down. Again, this is the mosaic you have to look at. So um, we do think that inflation is contained, and we are pleasantly surprised that the Fed agree, seems to agree with us right now. All right, Jay, I'm make sure our headline writers are, are ready here. What have you done to your S&P 500 price target and why? So uh, we raised it this morning. And the, the best way to summarize why is a terminal command MIPR, which I would recommend everybody boots up. We sort of sadly only figured this out about two weeks ago. That's market implied <laughs> policy rates right. for everyone tuning in. Yes. Yeah, so. Right. If you look at one of the columns, it's a sea of red, but that's good red. So those are all the rate cuts that are priced into all the major bond markets in the world. And so it's kind of obvious this data should exist because we have it in the US, right? Because there's, there's a futures market in every country. And so what's wildly bullish about this is that we were on two or three months ago, and we had this non-consensus call that the Euro economy was terrible. Yep, you did. And that uh, the Eurozone would be forced to cut, or ECB would be forced to cut. But the good news is you don't even need to listen to our rationale, because that's what market participants believe now. So I guess they're avid listeners of Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> but, and also, if you hover over the Eurozone chart, you can, tick, you can uh, put up a GPO chart, and you can see that it did plummet over the last two or three months. So this is the heart of the bull case. But it's even better, because the ECB was very recalcitrant today mm. and has what we think is kind of a crazy forecast of plus 0.8% for GDP next year, which we strongly disagree with. But the good news is you don't need to agree with our, our variant view on their economy because market participants in the Eurozone who trade Eurozone futures agree with us. That number did tick down a little bit. It was 144 is the negative, the cuts priced in next year after Lagarde's speech that ticked down six basis points. So, so it was a pretty hawkish speech. All right, so let me just summarize what the good folks at your firm, Infrastructural Capital Advisors, did this morning. They raised your price target for the S&P 500 to 5,500 from 5,150. That's based on a 21 and a half multiple on S&P consensus earnings for 270. So that's your 2024 year-end target? Correct. And for nice. perspective, we're right now at 47.25. Correct. Right, so that's okay. good. Yeah. What's the risk to your outlook here? Is it earnings risk? Is it macro risk? What are some of the well, issues? The, <clears> what a lot of people don't appreciate is the multiple on the market is 90% driven by long-term interest rates. So the reason we upgraded it is that we had this non-consensus call that rates were going to drop from five, but that looked a little bit problematic. So we were pretty conservative, 
conserved about tenure. So, but at a, at a 350, that implies a 21 times multiple on EPS, on S&P EPS. <clears throat> and the consensus is 270. And by the way, we did this methodology last year and came up with our 4,500 target. So it's just a very straightforward, if you don't like, as you're pointing out, don't like one of our metrics, you can just plug in your own. We're using 23.5%, which implies 21 and a half actually, and 270 on earnings. And we are bullish about earnings. And we think most people miss the dynamic that earnings normally go up by 10%. You don't need margin expansion. You don't need a very strong economy because companies are retaining earnings about 70%. Invest about 15, at 15% after tax, that implies 10.5% growth. So the earnings estimates are normal, not crazy. And we don't think you need to debate that and wring your hands about it because it's the companies reinvesting their cash flow, primarily driving earnings. So you had uh, started off by telling us that um, the Fed and the dot plot yesterday indicated three rate cuts. You think that there's only going to be two. The dot plot, though, there was a pretty wide range in there. You know, that's just the median um, with three cuts. But there are eight participants who saw fewer reductions. Five expect deeper cuts. Who do you, I mean, we obviously don't know whose dot really belongs to who, right. but you could take a reasonably educated guess. Who, who do you think is really the, the voice that you're following the most right now? Well, we think that, that the thought leader initially was really Goolsby, that he came in and sort of said the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> that the labor market is not the key driver of inflation. And so, and there are, I think that you got to the heart of the matter, is that Powell was probably forced to come off his tone because he had a number of participants saying that inflation is actually plummeting, that the, the economy is at risk. We think it's fine, but it is at risk if they keep rates. Because keep in mind, if inflation really is going down, then real rates are skyrocketing if you keep them flat. So it is encouraging that there apparently has been a little bit of a palace coup and the hawks have been moved more to the center or even dovish. Off topic question, UC Davis is where you graduated from. I'm a huge fan of the University of California system. Uh, it's just amazing what they've done over generations, haven't they? Yeah, so the advantage too that uh, particularly those Northern California schools have like UC Davis is that if you look at a map, if you're not from California, it's extraordinarily close to Silicon Valley. Yep. So those are great training schools. You don't learn like my kids Latin and all these other things, <laughs> <clears throat> but you learn, uh, I was trained in business, economics, medical, medical. So just a real professional school, it's practical, it's meant for public you know, kids as top 10% students. So um, probably the model of the future, although these are great schools we have in the Northeast. Yeah, but it's just, I mean, Professor Galloway from NYU, is, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. He's a mm -hmm. huge proponent of the UC system and what it did for him and what it does for generations of kids in California to, to bring them to the next level. And that's powered a lot of the economy, the great economy for California for over sure. the last 100 plus years. So Jay Hatfield, and then you got your MBA from someplace in Philadelphia, I don't know. Jay Hatfield, who's <laughs> the CEO, founder, and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors, raising the price target big time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Again, uh, movements in the markets here. We had a Fed that I think, I mean, look at the market 
reaction took the market by surprise with its cheerleaders everywhere. I, I don't know. It is I a good day. <laughs> just ripping here. Neil Grossman. Yeah. I don't. He doesn't strike me as a cheerleader. But Neil Grossman's here, <laughs> former CIO at TNKG uh, Capital, uh, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Neil, what did you make of yesterday and and the reaction in the marketplace? So good morning and happy holidays. <laughs> um, I think that was Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> um, couple of things, I guess. Number one, I think I what I took away, number one, is under the hood, Mr. Powell may have just told everybody he's changing the definition of, an, of what inflation measures they're looking for, raising the target. Because I was amazed, the thing that really was most amazing to me was the, the, the fact that he said, we can't wait till we get to 2% to start removing or providing more liquidity because that would be too restrictive. So is that a different message than? Well, I, that means two percent is no longer really your target, and not only that, we've I know we've talked about the fact that we're now going to have close to five four years or so of high inflation on an average basis. But he's now I think what's happened is he's raised the, raised the probability that getting to two percent is dropping, and the potential for reacceleration mm -hmm. is a problem. I mean, look, this whole rally started. Um, I guess five, six weeks ago when he made the comment that the market's doing the work for them. Ten-year notes were about 5%, give or take. Yeah. And um, interest rates have dropped a full 100 basis points, basically. Yep. Um, the stock market's up something like 20%. As of, at least as of yesterday, the dollar had been weakening. You had a drop in, in, in commodity prices. So everything was, since then, has, has functionally said we, we're providing a lot more liquidity in the market. Unemployment or the employment structure has, has, although yes, it's weakened. This is a very interesting thing. In a minute, um, it's still remarkably strong. So here's an interesting question: After the last employment number, the 12-month trailing average of job creation was at two, still at 235,000 jobs. Pretty high. When was the last time that happened? I'm going to say pre-COVID. 2015 for a short period, okay. and before that, and before that, 2000. So to add 235,000 jobs a month is an extraordinary rate right. of job creation in the absence of the fact that it's coming down from what were much much higher levels. So the relative um, strength of the economy, because if you look at a 500,000 a year before, there's a slowing there. But our job creation rate is still is still extraordinary uh, at, at a time when more or less maintaining the status quo of unemployment is give or take about 100,000 a month. Let's just come back for a second to one thing that you had just said. So, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think the expectation was ever that the Fed was going to wait for inflation to get to 2% before they started cutting. I don't think that they'd ever made any comment. They had a 2% target. I th and they that still do, they as far as I know. I, I don't no? believe that. Why not? Because I don't think they're going to get to 2%. And even if they do get close to it, the type of liquidity provisions that will already be in the pipeline are going to be raising the probability that they're not getting there. That's why, right? So so if, if the market, if the Fed's now talking about three cuts next year, the market's mm -hmm. got, I don't know, was it six or seven over the next... If, if you're liquefying through the, stock, the equity market, if you're liquefying through rate cuts, you're, you're already lowering, number one, the, the, the price, or raising the probability the prices are not going to fall as far, fast. Number two, which is, which is sort of he didn't want to talk about yesterday, I guess, we've had a lot of wage settlements in the, in the private sector, but also in the, in, in the 
you know, the, the COLA adjustments for retirees, by the way, I'm one now, so I'm going to be getting a lot <laughs> oh, more. Congratulations. But, um, <laughs> there was an 8.7% increase yeah, this year. Big. Every government employee, I believe, and many public, quasi-public people are also inflation um, adjusted. So those types of wage increases with inflation falling means there's a lot more you know, potential upward pressure that, that can be consumption-driven through a large part of the economy. Yeah, and then you're the not seeing, like, in general, though, like inflation-adjusted earnings as a whole, you know, ripping that much higher. I mean, they've now been positive for, what, like the last six months, but were negative for two years. Well, I, I'm not sure how negative they were. I guess, first of all, you had what might be negative in, in a direct payment, but you have to add in the type of money the government was giving to people in the alternative, and also, for example, which is is on the other side now, but telling people they don't have to pay their mortgages. They didn't have, I mean, there was a lot of student loans, student loan yeah. structural issues that made relative income look far far better, maybe than than the straight measure of of of, of the payments themselves. And I think what you're going to find, I, I mean, we'll see, but I think it's going to be very hard for every any business that's got unionized employees or, or and the government itself when it comes time to renegotiate, to, to sit there when their employees say, that's what they got, we get the same yeah. thing, which means there's an enormous amount of risk that, that, that in fact we have much more wage inflation in the pipeline or wage risk in the pipeline than anyone wants to accept. Not a whole lot of unions left, though, really, to drive well, that forward. Well, there are 20 million government employees in this country. They have a good bargaining power? They still have pretty good. But I've never okay. seen a government employee fired. I've never seen them be asked to take a, wa <laughs> okay. a wage cut, so, um, et cetera. Do you think in hindsight now, just seeing what the markets have done yesterday afternoon, this morning, I think Fed Chairman Jay Powell says, ooh, that's not necessarily the message I wanted to give. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, I, 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 he had op an opportunity to, 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 to couch this slightly differently. I, as I said, I think that the, the, to me, the single most important comment was the fact that we, if we're waiting till we get to 2%, we've waited too long. We see prices coming down. He ignored, he, he didn't use the same statement he'd made six weeks ago. He should have said the market is now providing the type of liquidity we need. We don't need to do as much because of this. But he didn't do it. So I, I think embedded in this message for the moment is the risk that they've, they've, they've now accepted a higher level of inflation as part and, par and parcel of their policy, which I, of course, think is a terrible outcome. But A lot know. of people have been calling for that, though, you know, saying like, look, like, you know, we've got a structurally different economy that maybe so an inflation target more around two and a half to three percent is more reasonable for like the world that we're living in now. Well, does that not sound like legit to you? No. Why not? Because it has none of us are none of us have the privilege, in my, my, from my perspective. Who who set the Fed's mandate? Congress. Congress. What is the Fed's mandate? To maintain price stability and, what, and, and uh, maximum employment. Right. And what is price stability? Zero inflation. So I don't know. is it? It is by definition. Now the, the fact is, you, the, the Fed was an unusual institution because it had a dual mandate, and it's actually there's a lurking third one about long price stable long term bonds. But the bottom line is they have a they have a, a two factor optimization, which allowed them to to functionally play with both. I think it was the Swedish central bank who who motivated this move to two percent, but. 2% is still not their theoretical mandate. And in fact, what was really sort of sad to me, they had inflation at about one and a quarter to one and a half and full employment about a decade and a half ago. And they said, well, that's, that's no good. We don't like inflation below a level. 
And then they all the modifications in, in how we define inflation and all these other measures. The answer is, if, if, if it's not a good thing, the Fed should be going to Congress. And by, by the way, just to take you off track, Lena Kahn and the FTC to me are the same issue. She is a regulator and an administrator. She's not a legislator. She is trying to functionally change the definitions and the, and the practices in the antitrust world. She should have gone to Congress. She's lost every case, basically, and it's costing American businesses hundreds of millions, if not tens of billions of dollars in business and legal costs. Shouldn't be for that. She should be in front of Congress saying, times have changed, things have changed, please, we need to revisit this. And so my point to, to your question is, all of us, you know, we can all decide what we want, but we live in, theoretically, and I think the Fed is telling you that doesn't make a difference, we live in a system where authority is granted from Congress to agencies to, to apply what they said, not to simply say, I don't really care what, the, what, what Congress said. Right. We'll do what we want. Right. Neil, great stuff. Well, you could do this all day, right? Oh, man. I feel like Neil reporter. and I could probably talk for the next three hours on this show, but we're, we're going to have to cut, keep it there for today. Thank you for joining us. All right. Neil Grossman, he's a co-founder, former CIO, TKNG Capital. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We want to get right to our next guest because we want to talk commercial real estate because I've got some big-time opinions on I have know nothing about commercial <laughs> real estate. I know nothing about it, but I have some opinions. Our next guest really does know stuff about that. Mickey Naftali joins us, CEO and chairman of Naftali Group. Uh, Mickey, thanks so much for joining us here in our studio. I'm a huge fan of New York City. I'm a huge fan of New York City real estate, but man, I'm hearing some dire stuff. People aren't coming back to the office. I'm looking down Third Avenue. I see lots of empty space there. What's your call on just, I don't know how you want to go with this, New York or just big cities or how you're thinking about it? Thank you for having me. So first of all, I don't, uh, I don't believe in the office uh, sector of real estate. So I, I invest mainly in, uh, in the residential okay. sector. Well, people got to live. Yeah, yeah. Yep. exactly. Exactly. Okay. So this is the thing. You really, uh, we really follow the demand. So do you and just go to Florida then? Well, no, but <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, New York. So, you know, in the past, I actually converted uh, many office buildings to to residential, and then there was the the period of time of uh, you know great office buildings and and even office buildings in in uh, neighborhoods such as uh, at Chelsea mm -hmm. and the Flatiron that were taken by the, the high-tech uh, kind of uh, companies right. and, and going converting back to, to office. But my view of the, the office space is, is, is not great. And unless you have a truly class A brand new office space. Like this one? Like this one, for example. <laughs> that you're sitting right? in. With all the, the amenities that you have yes. here, which is great. You're not doing well. The residential is a completely different story. 
Let's talk about that residential. Right. So New York City, we were talking earlier, right. we both agree that it's not dead, but in 2020, there were a lot of people, including myself, where it felt, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I actually, I was sharing with you, right. I loved how quiet it was. Um, but you did what a lot of people said couldn't be done, which you essentially sold out a beautiful residential building on right. 79th and Madison, smack in 2020 into 2021. How did you do that? And talk to us about how you were, what was behind that so, process. So yeah, going back to, to 2020, once COVID did, I said, you know, around the March, we started to hear on a daily basis, New York City is dead, New York City is dead. Now, People, did you have butterflies in your stomach <laughs> around that time, just for a little bit, or were well, you? Well, I was already in, and I had this yeah, so, okay, so, I, so I, had, <laughs> I had few projects. One of them was, was three years in the making, I bought multiple walk-up buildings on Madison Avenue, and I was a, a, I designed and I started to build the first uh, high-end residential building uh, anywhere between Park and Fifth Avenue in 25 years. That's right. So, so think true. about it. For 25 years, the only option for anyone that wanted to to live between Park and Fifth Avenue, and I would say high 60s to to mid the 80s is either one of the core buildings. Some of them are very famous, but old, small, mm. small windows, old, uh, old elevators, old mechanical systems, and, so, and no amenities, right? right? So for 25 years, no one could really figure out how to build a new building. So anyway, we were already coming out with the superstructure on Madison Avenue and between 79 and 80. And I was planning to open the sales office originally, in April of 2020. Obviously, I said, oops, let's stop, <laughs> right? Let's see what is going on. No, yeah, well, Whoops. couple right. of <laughs> Exactly. But then when the superstructure, we kind of stopped for about two weeks, construction in New York, and then we continue, mm. and we're coming up with the ground, and, and the superstructure was already, all, almost topping off, and we started to get phone calls from brokers and direct from buyers calling our office. Now, we didn't have any sign on the, on the site except our name, our company name. So people Google whatever, and they found our, our phone number, and they called us. So I said, oh, very interesting. So there is a demand. Mm -hmm. People are really, they're really curious. They want to buy. So September of 2020, I decided to open the sales office. The, 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 the space was ready to open. I didn't open it, right? September 2020, I opened the sales office. And between September and December of 2020, oh, I sold out. That's wow. amazing. That's yeah. just incredible because having been here, it's the city all really about was. The, re the, the demand is yeah. here in good days and bad days. Of yes. course, there is a slowdown. Of course, by the end of the day, if you have, by the way, not only real estate, if you have a product that, that is well, there is a real demand for it, you're going to do well. It's and all about product. inventory and demand, right? Uh, uh, so there was zero inventory and there was a demand, right? So that's yeah. why we, we were, I mean, that was the first of three projects that since then sold out, we did, sold out on the Upper East Side. All of them were doing extremely well. And they're, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I ha I'm now here in Sutton Place, but I had been on Upper East Side. And I saw day by day the one on 83rd go right. up. I mean, just absolutely <laughs> very distinct. And I right. think it's at the limestone, but the amenities, right. Uh, right. yeah, it's really pretty incredible. Yeah.
So I want to ask you, yeah. um, you know, selfishly, I just put in a down payment <laughs> for a, <laughs> um, uh, a very exciting. I just put in a down payment for um, an apartment on 67th and 3rd. So in Lenox Hill. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but I, of course, I want to hear, you know, if you think the value of it's going to go up. But it's, you know, it's a bill. But, you you know, you've been talking about these luxury buildings, all right. the amenities. Is there still value, though, for some of these buildings that are a bit simpler, you know, maybe just like good location, doorman, elevator, laundry, in-unit, amazing, right. um, and, um, and, and a terrace. But like right. maybe you don't have the big gym and all these other amazing right. common spaces. So, so I would say I don't know if the value will go up because think about where we are in, in all luxury product. The way we live today, most of us, right, mm -hmm. compared to our parents or definitely our grandparents, different quality right the huge. different huge different yeah. right so there is a demand for quality also most of us are much busier than our parents and grand definitely grandparents oh, yeah. so we we are looking for every moment that we have we're looking for the lifestyle that everything will be very very accessible and close to us amenities are very important it's part of the lifestyle that we all or not all, most of us that can afford are looking for. So I would tell you that there is no question in my mind that the appreciation of value is much higher for a really, really good product and not as much for, for let's call it an older product. Having said that location is, is as always very important. So if you're in the right location and you have the right bones and you upgrade your unit, you will do well. I like to hear that. <laughs> How would you describe uh, South Florida right now? Because we had the story here, as you well know. Seems like everybody in New York City left for Miami, F South Florida in general. Give us your extensive. Is it too much, too fast down there, or is that, or can this market really, I guess, thrive? So it, it's actually very interesting. I have I have two what I call mega projects in South Florida. I have, uh, I'm building a 70-story, 1.5 million square feet in, in Miami, in Ooh. downtown Miami, in a neighborhood, uh, in, in Miami World Center, which is, which is a new neighborhood in downtown Miami. And I'm building a very similar size, twin 50-story towers in Fort Lauderdale, wow. in Flagler Village. So here what... So Bullish, Mi I'm guessing. Mi <laughs> Miami and Fort Lauderdale are different. But here is the thing. For us, okay, it's all about demand. We we think that we are quite uh, we we are quite good in in designing and creating a really good product, but we're not good enough to create a demand. So we really follow good the point. demand. We look at where the demand is, and that's where we go. Specifically about Miami, Miami matured to a point, in my opinion, of no return. Yep. Miami mm. is it, Miami can offer not not everything that you can get in New York City, mm -hmm. but almost everything yep. between culture and restaurants and, and you name it and, and sports and yep. everything is there. And of course, many months of the, of the year, beautiful weather and the beaches and all of that, right? So, you know, it, this is, this is a, for us, this is a really important market and also a market that attract uh, quite a lot of Latin American uh, right. uh, buyers yeah. that either want to park money in the US or they as investment or they they just use their apartments x amount of weeks uh, 
you know, a year. So I, I think I think it's a strong market. I just opened a sales office uh, for the Miami project four weeks ago. Okay. We are we are doing well. So we, we think it's a strong market. Yeah. And that there's still more upside to it? Yes, because here's the thing. Remember, we are still in an environment or we are in an environment of high mortgage rates, right? Mm-hmm. So Trust drop below 7% today, but yeah, keep going. Correct. <laughs> yes. No, correct. Yeah. So going forward, <laughs> thinking about going 24, 25, we believe, and I'm sure that you believe that mortgage rate will start to go down. That's, there are still buyers that sitting on the, on the, just on the fence and waiting, right? Yeah and waiting now long-term projects projects that are going to be complete in in three four years anyway they don't need to commit to to take mortgages right now so it's all about deposit and taking a position sure. in a market that eventually there will be appreciation in in price you know on this topic just yesterday uh the fed indicated that right. they are going to be lowering rates next year so it supports everything that you're talking about in terms of being below seven percent the idea that rates will go lower is there a point where the housing market could overheat too much because i grew up in upstate and my uh, family member yesterday was just sharing a picture of a i think a 1500 square foot house going for 1.1 million dollars that same house five, 10, 20 years ago, literally would have been $150,000. Right. And so I'm just thinking if more fires put onto the market, it may be good, it will be good for somebody like you for a while, but at some point, is that going to create issues? So it's all about it's all about supply, it's all about the inventory, right? And in, in the main, uh, you know, in the main cities, there is, by, by and large, there, there is lack of supply. Right. Now think about it, it's not only the mortgage rates, there are only few developers mm. that yep. can build today. We were either lucky enough or qualified enough to to close. In, sorry. No, it's yeah. just, we're yeah. just running out of time. We'll, we'll get you back. The next okay. time in New York, it sounds like you're in New York a lot, so we'll get you back. Or we'll go down to South Florida. Mickey Naftali, CEO and chairman Thank of you. Naftali Group. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.